This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm JP Tasker, and this is the Power in Politics podcast for Friday, November 10th. On the pod today, relief workers confirm multiple hospitals in northern Gaza have come under Israeli fire. We hear from a doctor in the region and the executive director of Doctors Without Borders. Plus, do Canadians know enough about their veterans and what they have endured? And is the federal government doing enough to support them after they serve? The Veterans Affairs Minister is coming up. And the word coalition is bouncing off the walls of Parliament this week. Apparently everyone is in one of those. Our panel of political insiders is here to dissect this strategy. We begin in northern Gaza, or what the United Nations is describing as hell on earth. This is video from a Palestinian cameraman said to be just outside the Indonesian hospital in northern Gaza. It's one of multiple hospitals in the region reportedly under Israeli bombardment. The Hamas-run health ministry says thousands of staff, patients and displaced people are trapped inside. Briar Stewart is part of our CBC News team on the ground in Jerusalem. Briar, what are you hearing? Well, we know that the, the, the fighting has intensified in Gaza with Israeli forces pushing further south into the Strip. And overnight and in the early hours of this morning, there were reports uh, of strikes on at least three hospitals, on the hospital complexes, including the El Shifa Hospital, which is the largest medical facility in Gaza. Now, Palestinian officials uh, blamed Israel, saying it was an Israeli missile that hit um, a courtyard basically outside of the hospital. Tonight, Israel says that it was, uh, in fact, a projectile that hit that hospital, which was misfired from within Gaza. Now, as far as the hospitals themselves go, Israel says that their their military forces are moving towards them, but they say they're doing that cautiously. Now, why Israel is interested in these hospitals is because it believes that Hamas uh, militants are using them as a staging ground. In fact, they're beneath the hospitals, they say, in tunnels, uh, running um, c- command centers, in fact. Hamas denies these claims. But what it does mean is that you're seeing uh, an intensity uh, of fighting around these regions, and there are still tens of thousands of people in the area. You have the wounded, people who are severely ill, uh, people who medical staff say can't simply be evacuated to the southern area of the Strip. Now, for the last two days, Israel uh, has opened up two humanitarian corridors. They say 100,000 Palestinians have moved from the north to the south. U.S. officials had said that Israel would Uh, have a four-hour humanitarian pause in fighting. We haven't seen any indication of that. In fact, we've seen uh, continual strikes uh, throughout the day in Gaza. Uh, So it's not clear that there's been any kind of pause at all. But you do have Palestinians uh, that, that are moving. But Obviously, you know, the, the, the fighting and the level of violence and the death toll is just continuing to grow. Uh, the Gaza Health Ministry, which is, of course, run by Hamas, says that more than 11,000 Palestinians have been killed since October 7th, which is when Hamas and other militant groups launched that attack on Israel. And I think we also heard today perhaps some of the strongest language yet from U.S. officials about their concern over the, the growing number of deaths. U.S. Secretary of State, uh, Antony Blinken, said that far too many Palestinians have been killed and far too many have suffered. There are also fears of this conflict growing. What's happening regionally? 
Well, there's fears that it could grow on a number of fronts. Uh, there's a lot of tension and violence increasing in the West Bank. Yesterday, there were clashes in uh, in the West Bank, particularly in the city of Jenin, where uh, at least 18 Palestinians were killed. The IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, launched a raid there. There was also uh, violence involving Israeli settlers. We're also watching Lebanon, of course. Israel launched uh, more strikes against southern Lebanon today, against uh, targets, they say, of Hezbollah. Uh, they say that was in response to Hezbollah sending three unmanned aircraft into Israel yesterday. Israel also said that it launched a strike on an organization in Syria, and that was in response to an attack, uh, a projectile that was launched at southern Israel yesterday. So you really do see how there's been kind of no uh, relenting of, the, of this tension. In fact, it is, it's continuing to build. And I think, um, you know, tonight and over the weekend, where we're seeing a number of um, summits going on involving Saudi Arabia, other regional leaders who are meeting to try to figure out just uh, if there's any way to, to, to kind of to, to calm the, uh, the escalation that we're seeing. Okay, thank you. The CBC's Briar Stewart in Israel. The Israeli government today announced a revised number of people killed on October 7th when Hamas gunmen stormed a number of Israeli towns. The estimated death toll is now 1,200, down from 1,400. Hamas officials, meanwhile, say at least 22 people are dead after three hospitals in a school were hit by Israeli airstrikes. Gaza's biggest hospital, Al-Shifa, was reportedly one of those struck. Dr. Ghazan Abusita is a British-Palestinian doctor who has been working there since the beginning of the war. He sent us updates today from the Al-Ali hospital where he's working. The, the health system is collapsed. Um, there's no more health system in the northern part of Gaza. The whole of the northern part of Gaza only has the Indonesian hospital and the remnants of Al-Ahli Baptist hospital functioning. Shifa hospital has effectively fallen. We are just running a, a kind of trauma stabilization field hospital Al-Ahli just from all the wounded that came directly to us or from Shifa. And uh, Indonesian has run out of uh, fuel. Shifa has fallen. The staff have left majority of the staff has, has left. Anyone who's wounded and is able to walk has left. Only those who are too injured to, to move are inside with a core uh, group of staff. So basically, you've destroyed all of the pediatric hospitals, all three children's hospitals, put them out of service. You've attacked the cancer hospital, put it out of service. You've attacked the Quds hospital, put it out of service. Lauda has run out of fuel. Kamal Adwan has run out of fuel. And now you've attacked Shifa. It's been targeted all day with Israeli missiles. And so people have just run away. For more on this, Joseph Beliveau is the executive director of Doctors Without Borders Canada, and he joins us now. So we just heard from a doctor in Gaza who says the health system in northern Gaza has effectively collapsed following several strikes on hospitals. You've got over 300 colleagues in Gaza right now. What are you hearing from them? Just this morning, uh, in fact, we got a, a few messages uh, from our doctor and medic colleagues uh, in northern Gaza, and, and I'd like to read a couple of those messages uh, here now because I think it really uh, paints the picture. I was heading to Al-Shifa Hospital to work this morning when the facility was hit. All of us were horrified. Some of us threw ourselves to the ground. I saw dead bodies, including women and children. And another doctor colleague had this to say. 
we might not survive until morning. We don't want to be killed here just only because we remain committed to our patients and to our medical profession. So I think that just gives a sense of how dire and desperate the, the situation is. Uh, I think to, to, to say that the health system is, is failing uh, right in front of us uh, is, is an accurate portrayal of what's happening. Yeah, we're hearing some reports that hospitals are being evacuated. Is it possible, though, to evacuate some of these hospitals completely? I mean, we're talking about babies in incubators, children in intensive care. Where do they even go? Well, these orders to evacuate hospitals are nothing new. They've been happening uh, for, the, for the last several weeks. And my colleagues, uh, the doctors and medics in these hospitals, have said repeatedly it is simply not possible uh, to move uh, that this number of people, injured people in particular, and also critically ill uh, patients too, um, newborn babies on incubators, uh, pregnant uh, women in their, in their final trimesters. Um, there's, there's so many patients that simply can't move, and we are continuously seeing this wave, this constant wave of injured people because the bombing hasn't let up at all. Uh, so injured uh, civilians are coming into the hospital uh, routinely and you know where shall they go first of all they, they, they can't move from these facilities because some of them are so injured but secondly where shall they go there's there's no safe place in gaza it's maybe slightly safer in the south but the bombing continues there uh, how shall you get there safely um, and then you know layered on top of all this and this is where uh, MSF, where Doctors Without Borders, is coming from and calling for a, a ceasefire, something we very rarely do, is that the medical facilities themselves are supposed to be uh, protected spaces under international humanitarian law. Civilians must be distinguished from combatants in wartime and measures taken to protect civilians, and, and specifically and explicitly including medical spaces. And that's just, uh, it, there's, there's no humane reason or excuse for this continued bombing, and especially directly on medical facilities. Israel does say, though, that Hamas is operating out of the Al-Shifa hospital, which means that under international law, uh, it does it loses its protected status. It becomes a legitimate target. What do you make of that argument from the Israeli state? So here's, here's what we can say definitively, is that there are thousands, literally thousands of civilians in this uh, facility. And we know this because uh, more than half of them, the majority of them are women and children. Um, and we know this because people have come as civilians, unarmed, ununiformed, uh, simply to seek safety uh, in, in these facilities. Um, the way that my colleagues are describing Al-Shifa, but the other fairly functional uh, health facilities now is, is just one of just absolute chaos of of humanity where you've got patients lined up in the hallways um of course we we've spoken before about how we've run out of fuel for generators and the electricity is uh, is intermittent at best now uh we've run out of gauze we've run out of painkillers um we're we're literally doing surgical interventions on the floors in the hallways wherever it's possible one doctor was just describing how uh, they're they're having to use vinegar uh, to to disinfect the wounds, um, and you know to to describe that this is a place where you know Hamas has a base or something that just does not square with the the desperate needs of the people that my colleagues are describing in these hospital hospital facilities. So to to move. 
from making that declaration to we're going to go ahead and bomb this hospital is unconscionable. And this is why we're coming out now. Uh, as I said, it's a very unusual thing for MSF to do, but to call for a complete ceasefire. Normally, we would ask parties to conflict to respect international humanitarian law, to distinguish combatants from non-combatants, protect humanitarian spaces, don't do siege warfare, also very much against humanitarian law. Uh, but we wouldn't call for the parties to stop their worry. In this case, we think it's the only possible opportunity. We just stop the bombing. As you know, the Canadian government, though, is not yet calling for a ceasefire. They are still pushing the idea of routine humanitarian pauses to get people out and to get aid in. What do you make of the government's stance on this issue, given what you've just told us? Well, I mean, any moment when there's not a bomb falling from the sky is a, is a good thing. That's a good moment. Um, but a pause indicates uh, the, the, the resumption of the warring tactics that are currently being used. And so we, we can't abide by let's, let's have short pauses and then resume this type of warfare because it is so egregiously against humanitarian law, because it's so egregiously uh, impacting uh, civilians. And, you know, we see this sort of language where let's have these pauses so that we can increase some form of a humanitarian response. And obviously as a humanitarian, MSF is a humanitarian organization, so we have been also, you know, getting trucks together and getting teams together for that possibility to to get in and provide and scale up humanitarian assistance. But to, to speak in terms of these pauses to increase humanitarian aid feels like using humanitarian assistance as an excuse for political because what's needed right now is really strong political action to put an end to the to the bombing and to the to you know, the bombing and the siege warfare. Okay, let's leave it there. Thank you. Joseph Bellavo, Executive Director of Doctors Without Borders. Appreciate your time, sir. There were 266 Canadian citizens, permanent residents, and their family members on the approved list today to cross into Egypt, but none of them did. The Rafa border crossing remained closed. CBC News did speak to some Canadians who have made it out this week. They were at the Canadian Embassy in Cairo, including a woman who we've been following on this program very exhausted and tired and so drained to be honest um, finally here finally like as soon as we entered the hotel we just went into tears because it's like been so long we've been waiting to get out it was a matter of are we gonna die today you know are we gonna leave tomorrow we got called and then it got cancelled a few times to get out so that was just so disappointing Finally, we made it. Honestly, I don't, I don't have words to say or express. There's no such words that could express how I feel right now and how it was for not just only me, my family, my extended family, my friends, everybody, even my children. It was, it's, it's extremely hard. It's, it's, it's devastating. I was very frustrated when I was inside Gaza, to be honest, because, um, you know, we are living in a, a, a life or death situation and we wanted to be helped and, like, rescued, right? We wanted the world to be moving for us to be rescued as soon as possible to, for, for, for mountains to be moved for us, you know? This is how it felt. Um, and we felt we were left out. Uh, we felt that there wasn't... Sometimes there wasn't a lot of pressure was being put 
from the Canadian government. Um, and honestly, as soon as we got to the borders, uh, as soon as we crossed yesterday, we were so relieved to see the Canadian officials at the borders. Like, it was like, oh my God, the Canadian flag was there and she welcomed us and she was like, you're going to be okay. You're safe now, you know, you're almost, you're almost there. Though it was tiring, like we haven't even slept for 26 hours till now. But, uh, you know, it was a relief that we're there. That was Asia Mathkor, a Canadian woman who we've been in touch with, who is now safely at Gaza. Tomorrow is Remembrance Day, an emotional and deeply personal day for many Canadians. Millions of people across the country wear the poppy every year to mark it. The reason I'm wearing a poppy is for Remembrance Day, to remember the fallen, the veterans that served our country. My father was in the Army, so in World War II, so yeah, it does mean something. Remember, we want to celebrate, well not celebrate, but honour the soldiers that died for our country. Just to remember the soldiers, I think it's important for her to know, being so young, that she needs to carry that on into the future. As the name suggests, it's for remembrance, you know, uh, because we got to know, we got to know our history to go forward in the future. My grandfather was in both world wars. If it wasn't for those guys, we wouldn't have this country we had we have today. Jeanette Pettipot-Taylor is the Minister of Veterans Affairs. Minister, welcome to the show. Thank you. What does Remembrance Day mean to you? Do you think of a family member who served at this time of year? It's a very solemn occasion, for sure, for many Canadians, and for me as well. I have several family members that have served and continue to serve. Uh, so it's really a time of, of reflection, a time for me to, to think of their sacrifice that they've made and to thank the many men and women that have served this country and that are still serving today. I wanted to play you some tape of Howard uh, McNamara. He flew Spitfire fighters over Italy during the Second World War. Amazing guy. Have a listen. Remembrance Day is history. We went through a war, and the younger generation don't learn that in school. When we went to school, we learned about history. And it seems the younger people don't realize. So that gentleman is 103 years old, served in the Second World War. He's making the point that maybe not enough Canadians know about our history of service and what our veterans did for us. Is there something to be said for that? Is he right that maybe people don't know enough about our history? I think it's a big part of the work that we need to do. We need to make sure that those continue that we continue to share those stories. And that is through our young people as well. I know that over the past few weeks I met with several young individuals, students in schools, that are really paying special tributes uh, to veterans. They're making a point to meet with veterans. And that is really, really important because if we want those stories to continue on, we have to make sure that they're going to be taught and that we're going to have individuals that will be able to share those stories for years and, and decades to come. Yeah, there was an Ipsos read poll out just recently, a really interesting data about Remembrance Day and veterans, and they found actually that more Canadians know about U.S. military history than Canadian military history. Does that, that seems problematic to me. It says that there might be a shortcoming somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we need to certainly know our history before we know other countries' history. And again, I think that we all have a role to play when it comes to that. And our education system as well, we certainly, when, I know when I went to school, you know, we certainly had history classes and we learned about the different wars. Uh, but again, I think that we all have to take it upon us and take that responsibility on to make sure that we educate our children and our grandchildren. And again, to make 
sure that those stories are not forgotten uh, because we certainly often know um, that uh, these individuals that have served in these times are not going to be with us forever and we need to make sure that we carry on other stories and their legacy. I want to ask you about the veterans benefits backlog as well. You've made significant progress as a government. You've really whittled it down to where it was but there are still about 5,000 applications pending that need to be reviewed by Veterans Affairs Canada. Where are we with that backlog and why is it taking so long for so many folks that really need support from this government? Really, really good question. Uh, we've certainly have made huge progress when it comes to the backlog. Just last Friday, actually, I was in um, Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, where we announced an additional $164 million to help sustain 650 employees that are working on that backlog for the next two years. So again, we're not going to stop until that we meet our, our service standards, and we are certainly making tremendous, tremendous progress with respect to that. Why are we dealing with the backlog, though? It's a really good question that you ask. Since we formed government, we've invested an additional $11 billion in additional services and support for veterans. And as a result, we've seen a 61% increase in people applying for benefits through, vet through Veterans Affairs Canada. So as a result, we've, we're seeing a substantive amount of new cases that are coming in. And as such, that's why that we found ourselves with a backlog. But again, we are addressing it and we are certainly, you know, in a, in a very good position to make sure that we meet our service standards in the very, very near future. You speak about service standards. I think it's that 80 percent of applications will be processed in 16 weeks, Correct. right? So that still means 20 percent of people will not see any service for more than four months. I mean, that still seems like a long time to wait, especially if you're a veteran in need, doesn't it? I completely appreciate that, but I think we also have to recognize that there's some cases that are a bit more complex and that we need more analysis. Sometimes we need more medical reports, whatever the case may be. So depending on some cases, we're going to see that the analysis will be done in a very, very quick uh, matter, that it won't even take 16 weeks. But again, there are some more complex uh, matters that take a bit more time. And again, we want to make sure that the assessment is done appropriately to make sure that the the veterans have access to all the benefits that they're entitled to. Some folks really do depend on those benefits and we see that there are consequences for people having to wait some human consequences. I don't know if you're familiar with this story but recently in Edmonton a food bank there that serves veterans alone reported that the number of clients they're serving has quadrupled since they opened their doors three years ago. They're now serving 160 veterans a day, people who really need access to food. What do you say to those folks? Are you able to help veterans food banks like this, can you give them some more money, some more support to kind of get through these tough times? Well, once again, I think that it's very important to make sure that, first of all, veterans that are veterans get in touch with Veterans Affairs Canada to make sure that they know what services that they qualify for. Believe it or not, there are some individuals that have served this country that don't even know and don't consider themselves veterans. I'll use an example. A few years ago, I had gone out on a walk uh, with Vets Canada in my community in Moncton, and we were just looking for individuals that perhaps were living on the streets or, you know, living rough, let's say. And they during the training or that orientation session, they indicated to me, Jeanette, just make sure that just don't ask them if they're a veteran. Ask them if they ever served in uniform because many of them, just because that perhaps they didn't serve a long period of time, don't consider themselves veterans. So for us and for, for your viewers this evening, I guess first and foremost, if anyone has served and if they, you know, need help, make sure that first and foremost they get in touch with Veterans Affairs Canada, then from there to meet with a case manager and we can see what services are available to them. Also in that situation, 
the, the example that you provided as well. If some veterans are facing some difficulties as well, we do have some emergency funds that sometimes they can qualify for as well. And that doesn't take very long at all. It can only take a few days, really. But first and foremost, they have to get in touch with Veterans Affairs. Then from there, we can do the assessment and get them the help that they need. Do you have any data on how many veterans may qualify for benefits but haven't applied? Like, is it a sizable number? It's, again, we don't have that number. Uh, again, when people serve in the Canadian Armed Forces, some of them leave uh, you know, at a very young age. And if they don't uh, ask for services immediately, we don't have a way to really contact them. They have to really reach out to the mm -hmm. department. And that continues to be kind of a... a an issue I think that I've seen uh, and getting a better communication plan out there and making sure that people are aware uh, is really really important. Yeah, speaking of sleeping rough and data, we it's really hard to get a number on how many homeless veterans there are. I think for the reasons you just said, some folks don't necessarily identify themselves as such when when surveyed by people who do this sort of work. But the best estimate I can find is about 3,000 folks are homeless veterans uh, on the streets of this country. Is there something more you can do? One thing I think is really interesting, in the United States, a lot of states exempt property taxes for disabled veterans. I know in this country you've been trying to roll out a rental supplement program. But is there something, and I know this isn't necessarily federal responsibility, but is there something more you can do maybe on property taxes for vets don't lose their homes? Those are going up with the cost of housing as well. Maybe that's something that the government could look at. And again, those are the types of conversations that I think that we have to continue to have. I think that everyone has a role to play when it comes to housing. I think we all recognize that the province as well has a role when it comes to property taxes and the rest of it. So I certainly can't speak on their behalf as to what they're prepared to do. But when it comes to veterans' homelessness, in the last budget, we did announce $79 million. Uh, and we are just in the process right now of making the um, analysis, uh, an analyzing the applications that have come through uh, so that from there we can provide uh, the monies to the different organizations. And as as you've indicated, we certainly want to make sure that through this fund that we'll be able to provide rent supplements to veterans, but also to make sure that we are able to provide the wraparound services that they do need as well. We want to set up our veterans for success, and sometimes they do need additional help and support, let it be for substance use and addictions or whatever wraparound services they need. So the monies that we have put aside will be doing just that, rent supplements and also wraparound services. Uh, and again, it may look different in different communities. Uh, the reality in perhaps in Atlantic Canada is perhaps different than out west so we can't have a cookie cutter approach when it comes to housing we really again want to meet the veterans where they're at and to provide them with the help that they need uh, in the time that they that they need it because I, I think you'd probably admit 3,000 vets on the streets that's not a good number we don't want to see yeah. that as one a veteran on the street is not a good number you know they have served our country and we need to be there for them in their time of need Canadians don't necessarily agree on everything, but they do agree on one thing, and that's our vets. And I think that's really quite touching. When I just referenced that Ipsos poll earlier, 85% uh, of people surveyed said we need to do more to honour our veterans. And one way to honour our veterans is to build an Afghan memorial in Ottawa. I know this has been on your file. It's been very active. There's been some controversy about the pick for what the actual memorial will be, but I don't necessarily... Uh, want to harp on that you can mention it if you want but i think what i'm trying to get to is why has it taken so long i mean this government has been in power now for eight years the conservative government first pitched it before you the timeline to have it actually built is still some years off 
are, are we not are we letting our Afghan veterans down by not having something in place? They've been waiting so long to have some sort of place here in the nation's capital. I'm as impatient as you are about this, and I think it's been a long process. The process started in 2015 when the previous government was in power. They chose a site, and the veterans were not pleased with the site that was chosen. Uh, therefore, we found a new location where the monument will be erected, and from there we started the consultation process. We've heard from veterans. Uh, we've heard them loud and clear which concept uh, that they wanted to see um, selected, and as such, we made the decision as a government in order to choose uh, that that concept. We've actually signed the contract, or the national uh, the, the NCC has signed the contract uh, with the proponent now, and the work will hopefully be on the way in the very very near future. And as you've said, we want to make sure that we have a place to honor our Afghan veterans, and in order to ensure as well that the Afghan veterans have a, a, an area where they can go and. Uh, again, to pay respect to their, you know, lost comrades and also to the fellow Canadians that they served with. Because veterans aren't just older folks, right? There are people my age, people not much older than me, who also need to be honoured, right? And, you're, and I'm happy that you mentioned that because a part of my responsibility and one of my priorities, I should say, is really doing a better job at commemorating our modern-day veterans. As you've indicated, a lot of the veterans that we see nowadays when they're exiting the, Can the Canadian Armed Forces are leaving at a very young age and many of them have other careers afterwards ahead of them. But we still have to recognize the work that they've done in different missions around the world. We have to do a better job at commemorating those folks. And that is certainly a priority of mine. I've indicated to you before the show, I've got several family members that have served in different missions. Uh, and I see the toll that it's taken on them and on their families. Their families have served with them. And it's important that we commemorate them and to thank them for their service. Well, thank you for your time today. Uh, Jeanette Pettipod-Taylor, the Minister of Veterans Affairs, I really appreciate you coming in to share your stories. Thank you. As I was discussing with the minister, a recent poll on Remembrance Day found 85% of respondents think Canada should do more to honour its veterans. And 87% think Canada should be doing more to educate young people about Canada's military history. This was a poll conducted by Ipsos on behalf of Historica Canada. For more insight into what these numbers tell us, I'm joined by Anthony Wilson-Smith, President and CEO of Historica Canada. Sir, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So these poll numbers suggest there's a rare consensus among Canadians. Nearly everyone polled said we should teach our young people about military history. And yet most provinces do not require high school students take a Canadian history course before graduating. What do you make of that? It's only three out of the 13 provinces and territories that have a full you know, Canadian history course per se. And of course within that you're then trying to cover about 100 and whatever it is now, 156 years never mind the thousands of years of Indigenous presence before that. So, you know, and then getting to war campaigns within that is just a tiny fraction. So sure, it's a big problem. Yeah, I mean, only three of the ten provinces, that's what you said? Only three of them require this? Yeah, there are some that will tell you that they do under the ages of, uh, for example, of sociology or it touches in with other things. But there are only three that do a full, here is Canadian history, that's what it's called, that's what you're going to do. Maybe that explains this next question. Almost half of Canadians surveyed in this poll that we're referencing knew more about American military history than Canadian military history. What does that tell you? It tells you a lot of people still go to see Saving Private Ryan. It says that, you know, Hollywood and television and all the enormous presence in Netflix and otherwise, you see some Canadian, you know, films, but we're just, we're just overwhelmed by it. And um, the American, you know, American culture is a much more effectively military culture than ours. It's, you know, we do what we can. We do our heritage minutes. Other people do lots of things on this, but um, it's the old, you know, Pierre Trudeau, 
you know, first Prime Minister Trudeau saying I'm most sleeping next to an elephant, and that applies in these terms as well. Fair enough. Uh, 85% of those surveyed think Canada needs to do more to honour our veterans. That's overwhelming support. Politicians would love to have numbers like that. Uh, what do you suggest we do to honour our veterans? Build a memorial in Ottawa to Afghan veterans, as you were just uh, saying just now. It's, uh, you know, if there's a site, and uh, it's, you know, it shouldn't be that hard to reach agreement. It's a great beginning step. Talk to the provinces and find out why there isn't more teaching in schools. Um, fund some places um, that will do more within this and uh, make sure the military, you know, the first person people have more chance to tell their stories because you don't get much of that as well. There's a pretty hard uh, lid kept on, um, on, you know, military veterans or present serving people speaking about their experiences and no one does it better than they do. You want to mention something about peacekeeping, I understand, too. Tell me what you're thinking about with Remembrance Day tomorrow. Yeah, there's two things. First of all, this is the 75th anniversary of, uh, of Canada Canadians serving as peacekeepers. Whenever you poll, when, when we poll and other people do, it always shows up as one of the things which Canadians are most proud of, peacekeeping presence in the world. We've had, a, you know, we've been peacekeepers and peacemakers, which is very tough. It's a very different set of skills. We do it very well. And so we've lost 130 people in that line. In the kind of fractious world in which we're living right now, of course, we always want to pay respect to World War II veterans, but the dangers these people undergo when they're out there are every bit as formidable. Another interesting figure is that more Canadians are making an effort to attend official Remembrance Day services. Uh, the numbers are even higher than pre-pandemic levels. What do you think is driving all that interest? I guess two things. First of all, um, you know, there's awareness that the average military, you know, World War II veteran, which we feel so strongly, is either closing in on 100 or slightly past that. Of course, that means very few are left and we're losing them literally by the week. The other is, frankly, that, you know, we live in a multicultural country, as we know, with many advantages to that, but also the world has come to our doorstep, including those problems. We're much more aware that, you know, it's 78 years since World War II. Not one year has passed without, you know, without war in some dark corner of the world taking place. And we now, you know, as we have people from so many societies, we understand that firsthand in ways we didn't before. And unfortunately, the demonstrations we see over the last couple of weeks, um, Israel-Palestine, um, you know, anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim, uh, Russia, Ukraine, all of those exist right here in this country as well. And that makes us think about it, too. So we know from these numbers that more people want young people to know about Canadian history. We know that more people, more wants, uh, people want more to be done to honor our veterans. And we know that more people are interested in Remembrance Day services than perhaps in a generation. What does that tell you? And what are you going to the government and saying? Do we need to have a, a reset as how do we approach this issue? It tells me that it's very good about young people. I was very, very happy to see those numbers. You know, if you consider the fact that, for example, if you were 15 years old in 1985, you know, a World War II veteran could have been your hockey coach, your school teacher, the bank manager for your parents, the person next door. It was very much a part of everyday life. That same person who was 15 that is now in the early 50s and that 60-something veteran is now approaching 100 or no longer with us. So for 30-somethings or 20-somethings to get that sense of awareness that they show really speaks well to their level of engagement in this issue and of their level of respect. And that's something government really should be listening to, of course, because, you know, this is the generation of today, of tomorrow. We're not talking about some dusty old thing to be put away soon somewhere, but rather a concern that's going to keep echoing over the ages. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much to Anthony Wilson-Smith, the president and CEO of Historica and Canada. Thanks for your time, sir. My pleasure. Canadians who have served and are serving in the military will be honoured tomorrow on Remembrance Day, and CBC News will have special live coverage from the National War Memorial. Our chief political correspondent, Rosemary Barton, will be hosting. It begins at 10 a.m. Eastern on CBC Gem, CBC TV, and right here on CBC News Network.
The Liberal-NDP relationship is on shaky ground after a week of disputes over climate change plans and a bill to replace replacement workers. Seeing the, the NDP vote with the Conservatives against a price on pollution is something that has disappointed millions of progressives across this country. We said no, we don't, we don't support the division and the cynical moves of the Liberals. Absolutely not. This morning, we tabled legislation to ban replacement workers. The Liberals would never have done this. They would have never tabled this legislation but for the fact that New Democrats and Labour together fought to make this happen. To correct Mr. Singh, who frankly wasn't at the table for this at all, um, you know, th this is the, th we absolutely would have done this. Is this the beginning of the end for the Liberal and NDP supply and confidence deal? It's time to bring in the Friday power panel. Emily Nicolas is a columnist for Le Devoir. Here with me in studio is Toronto Star National columnist Susan Delacour, journalist and author Paul Wells, and Marie Vastel is an editorial writer for Le Devoir. So I'll start with you, Marie. Is there trouble in paradise for the Liberals and NDP? First, the NDP come out against the carbon tax voting with the Conservatives to agree to extend the the tax pause to all forms of energy. Now there's a squabbling over the uh, ban on replacement workers. What do you make of the developments this week? Well, on the carbon tax, um, I was reminded by an old-time NDP uh, person who's not there anymore, but um, <clears throat> that the NDP has always sort of been not torn, but but trying to balance um, the environment and climate change with their preoccupation for af affordability and um, lower income Canadians. So that didn't come as that much of a shock to some old New Democrats, though it, it, it does seem odd to see um, Mr. Singh stand with Mr. Polyev on that policy. Um, it, there does seem to be a bit of um, thumping of the chest, if I can say, by, by Jagmeet Singh, but at the same time, he's been telling us for a while that whether or not they rip this deal is a live issue, um, that they will always try to get more. They see in the Liberal government's weakness right now an opportunity to make more gains. <clears throat> and so... I think there's a lot of theatrics. Yeah. Uh, they haven't ripped up the deal yet, and, and, and I don't see them doing it short-term. No one wants an election. The NDP doesn't want one either, because the Conservatives are also eating into their own um, voting, vote, um, voting hopes or voting uh, support. So I, I don't think it's an eternal deal, but I, I don't necessarily see Mr. Singh's um, rhetoric as having changed that much and even if it were to falter i said it last week and i'll say it again there is an opportunity for the government to agree with the bloc quebecois they voted with the liberals on this uh, conservative motion to um suspend uh, the carbon tax on home heating uh, they are trying to work something out with the liberals to help them pass c56 <clears throat> sorry i'm getting over a cold that is taking forever <clears throat> uh, to, to, to work with the liberals to support C-56, which is the bill that would um, lift the GST right. on new housing. Uh, and they are quite happy to see the NDP kind of get impatient because they also have the balance of power and they would be very happy to grab that negotiation power. And so Jagmeet Singh can try and push the Liberals. I just don't know how effective that is and how scared the Liberals actually are. You mentioned rhetorical change and Jagmeet Singh. Uh, let's play a clip for our audience and for our panelists. Jagmeet Singh was in Edmonton today. He was asked about that motion that he had tabled earlier this week to remove the GST from all home heating. Listen to this, and we'll dig into it after. Then we came with another idea saying, let's take the GST off home heating. Let's axe that tax. Paul Yev and the Conservatives voted against <laughs> axing the GST tax. I mean, we know, Paul, that that is 
Pierre Polyev's signature line, mm-hmm. Axe the Tax. I mean, I know it's not the most original tagline you've ever created, but is that on purpose? Like, is Singh trying to adopt some of the seemingly winning rhetoric of Pierre Polyev? Uh, not for the first time. The Conservatives and the NDP in a lot of the country are competing for the same voters. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's got to bug the... Well, I know, because some of them have told me, it bugs the hell out of the New Democrats that Polyev can get any traction at all uh, in the, with that clientele, essentially working-class families. Um, and uh, and uh, it's been very difficult for Jagmeet Singh to improve his fortunes, or frankly to screw them up particularly, since the last election, one of the few constants in Canadian politics is that every poll shows the New Democrats at 18% nationally. Mm-hmm. Solid as a rock. And uh, I, I, I bet Mr. Singh wishes he were doing better, and so uh, every once in a while we see uh, gestures like this. Mm-hmm. But as we pointed out, I mean... Uh, the New Democrats have pedigree when it comes to not being uh, uh, blind faith, true believers in carbon taxes. In 2008, when Stéphane Dion ran on a carbon tax, uh, uh, Jack Layton ran hard against it, uh, believing that uh, you could get all of the revenue you want and all of the emission reductions you want by heavily penalizing large emissions, and the rest of the society would somehow go, on, go ahead as though that wasn't happening. And, and, and uh, what we see these days with gestures like Mr. Singh's is... Um, uh, a descendant of that thought. Susan, what do you make of this? I mean, Axe the Tax coming from Jagmeet Singh, sort of parroting the lines of Polyev, if you will, also introducing his own competing motion to lift taxes on um, home heating, even though the government's trying to push down climate change emissions. What do you take of I, I think I'm, I, I liked Marie's word, theatrics. Um, I think I see a lot of this as just um, for show. Mm-hmm. I, it seemed to me, I, people were initially shocked when they said they were going to serve notice. And we saw that sort of as a rescue thing. Yeah, I'm going to vote with them, but I'm going to have my own, um, my own proposal, Singh said. So I've been seeing since this deal has been founded, they keep talking, they do tough talk on the outside. And it's like Doug Ford and, and Justin Trudeau. They talk tough outside, but then they're mm-hmm. best friends at nighttime, you know, right. when they're talking on the phone. I think there's a little bit of that. And I would say, finally, on this, I think, first of all, if it's if there's tension, it's going to be over pharmacare, mm-hmm. and that's coming up. And my, when I was phoning around about this a couple of weeks ago, I was told they are both so heavily invested in this deal that it's not going to fall apart. Mm. It's not going to fall apart lightly. Uh, most significantly, because as Paul was saying, the Conservatives are eating both of their lunches right now. So I, I think this is a theatrical display of... Um, uh, I was going to say, it's like that Bugs Bunny cartoon, you know, where the wolf and the Morning sheepdog, Sam. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, yes. they, they show up at, and fight each other all day and then go have a beer at night. I think it's a bit of that. Emily, what do you think? Ed Broadbent, the former NDP leader from, you know, some time ago, was speaking to Rosemary Barton, um, I believe it was two or three weekends ago, and he said, really, the deal should have been a year shorter, that the NDP should not have agreed to go all the way to 2025 and prop up the Liberal government for that long. Do you see there being cracks in the foundation now, given what we've witnessed over the last week? Um, I think Mr. Broadbent is having the benefit of hindsight. Uh, but, which we all do. Uh, but I think when the deal was struck, uh, we need to remember that the context was that uh, Canadians had just basically voted back in uh, a parliament that was eerily similar to the one that had just dis- been mm-hmm. disbanded. Um, and everybody was saying uh, that the message should be 
that Kenyans want uh, this parliament to work, although it's a minority uh, government, and that uh, basically everyone who would not try to make it work would be penalized by Canadian in the ballot box if there was an election coming again. And so that was the narrative back then, and I understand why in that context um, such a deal such a deal was, was struck. And the main aspect of that deal, pharmacare, is something that's going to come up, uh, as Susan was saying, very uh, very soon. And so that's that's for me one of the main con- concerns in terms of where where the deal should have been. Now it's it's getting trickier for the NDP to just you know not do the theatrics if we're going to go with this word that they are doing now because the Liberals are doing so bad. And so there's been issues with their communication in the past where they were just you know, saying the government is doing great things and it's thanks to us. So basically they were propping the government up because Justin Trudeau is not doing well right now. Uh, they're adjusting their communications and I think it makes sense uh, for them to do so. Uh, and it would actually be very risky for them to just be too aligned uh, with the mm-hmm. liberals right now, not just because the conservative is eating their lunch, but also because Justin Trudeau is not doing well and being associated with him right now is not the greatest strategy. I'll get to the polls in a second, but I want to just kind of ask you, Marie, and feel free to dodge it, but Pharmacare, mm-hmm. it's been mentioned a couple times. We know that it's probably not going to be what the ADP want, right, from the yeah. government. The legislation that Mark Hall and the health minister has been saying is coming, he's been kind of setting the table for it not being a full mm-hmm. universal Pharmacare like what the NDP have mm-hmm. been calling for. Mm-hmm. It's probably going to be something a little different, right? It's going to be maybe tinkering around Complimentary the Complimentary to what the provinces have. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, does that threaten the deal? Because they've been clear. The NDP say, no, no, we yeah. want free, universal Pharmacare, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. I mean, could that be what brings us down? I'm going to half-dodge it. Um, <laughs> I... I think there is a risk because they're at their own convention. Their their um, members did say that that's what they right. want. They want it to be universal. They want it to be for everyone. And the federal government and provinces like Quebec are saying, "Well, no, we already have plans. It's too complicated. You can't just go into our jurisdiction." I will spare you all the the arguments, but um, and so it's. See, I agree with you that from my conversations with Mark Holland as well. I I, I don't think the, the NDP is going to get what they want, and it might be difficult to accept that given that their um, their own members were pretty clear and unanimous yeah. that that's what they want. Um, they also were probably very attentive, attentive sorry, to what um, Ed Broadbent sent on Rosie's show, um, because he does have a lot of gravitas to the NDP, and he actually kind of knows what he's talking about, because he replaced an NDP leader who had a informal but supporting agreement, or at least he was supporting the Pierre-Elliot Trudeau government, um, and then he did very badly in this in the subsequent election and so he sort of probably sees what's coming and mm-hmm. i might um go ahead of you on the poll just to say that i think the ndp also knows that so it, it, it will they tear it up will they not tear it up um they are worried about the conservatives in the poll like my colleague said and in this abacus poll um they were the ones ndp voters who seemed them who said they were more likely to change their mind and maybe vote liberal if they see that there is a likely win by Pierre Poliev or that they're uncomfortable with Pierre Poliev being prime minister. 51-54% of NDP voters said they are likely to change their mind. And that has to also be on the NDP's mind as to whether do we tear up the deal and risk um, a earlier election uh, than, than, than we 
could avoid by staying in the deal. Yeah, the control room, let's put up the graphic that we have of this Abacus data poll. This was taken after the carbon tax uh, carve-out, carbon tax carve-out for <laughs> home eating oil. Uh, so we, they found that conservatives are at 39%, 13 points ahead of the liberals at 26%, with the NDP sitting at 18%, the block 7, green 5, PPC, still at 4. They're still hanging around at 4. Okay, <laughs> interesting. Um, Paul, what do you make of these numbers? I mean, it's, I mean, despite everything we've just been saying, you know, the election in theory is still two years away, right? If this agreement holds with the NDP. But 13 points is a lot. I mean, we're talking about majority government territory, right? Easily majority government territory. What do you, what do you take away from these polls? Liberal Party share of the popular vote has fallen in six of the last seven national elections. The only election in the last seven where the Liberal Party vote increased was in 2015 when Justin Trudeau was fresh and new. Uh, um, the great thing about political science is it's not predictive. Something else is going to happen next mm -hmm. time, and, and it's out of my pay grade. That's up to Canadian voters. Um, one of my pet theories is that this uh, agreement with the NDP has been bad for the Liberals in ways that are really not obvious. Uh, instead of uh, having a pretty good run in minority government because they could have played uh, one opposition party against the other, uh, and keeping a keen eye to what voters want because they had no guarantee of surviving, mm -hmm. uh, instead they're in a situation that seems to provide stability, but turns their attention inward to the Hill bubble and to the left and uh, dis has discouraged them from listening closely to stakeholders. We saw this week that just about every small, independent, entrepreneurial news organization in the country that represents the future of journalism in Canada told them that Bill C-18 would be a catastrophe, and they paid no attention. That's, what you, that's the sort of thing you do when, you're, when, you're, when, you're, when your uh, senses are dulled by complacency. And it has uh, made them not very agile in responding to the, the far bigger threat than whether uh, Jagmeet Singh is their friend, mm -hmm. is whether uh, Pierre Polyev uh, takes working class family vote out from under them. And so I, uh, you, you can't prove a counterfactual, but I, I wonder how the last couple of years would have gone if they hadn't had that, that deal. Pierre Elliott Trudeau famously took the walk in a snowbank, right? Or was it just, was it a bank? Maybe it was just snow. Just snow. <laughs> yeah. snow. Maybe he gotten stuck yeah. in the snowbank. Yeah, maybe that's wrong. <laughs> but he famously took a walk in the snow and then came back and decided it was time to step aside. Nouveau, a Quebec TV network, yesterday uh, interviewed the Prime Minister. They were walking in the snow and oh they goodness. were having a conversation. <laughs> so great imagery there. But Justin Trudeau was adamant that he will mm. be here in two years and he will be running as the leader of the Liberal Party in the next election. You wrote about this as well. <laughs> your thoughts, Susan? I, I took a walk in the snow with him a couple of years. Was it last year or whatever? I, I did an interview and I said, you know, this is sort of weird. We're <laughs> walking in the snow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you have to take somebody at their word when they say they're, they're staying. Um, that abacus poll um, that was done for us, and we actually looked at the questions before because we were trying to figure out what this is. All of us are hearing it in our worlds. People don't like Justin Trudeau. Is it him? Is it what he's done? Mm -hmm. Or is it just, you know, they're tired of him? Mm -hmm. And would it be better if he left? It seems pretty clear from the polling that the Liberals might be in better shape, but we didn't ask about alternatives. And the universal view is there's no real alternative to Trudeau right now. 
And no one knows that better than Mr. Trudeau himself. Uh, he, I, I think I mentioned this last time I was on the show, is that uh, there was a, a social event where he was talking about this, and he was saying that he's got time, and he loves every fight in which he's underestimated, and as long as the polls show him underestimated, he's happy. He also called the next election an existential choice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the reason why he thinks he needs to stay. Yeah. This is sort of like, I need to fight Mr. Polievre, um, and I think he's very stubborn in that in that thinking. I think he really genuinely wants to take on Polyev, yes. right? I think he's like spoiling for that fight. Emily, I also want to get you in on this because interesting numbers out of Quebec uh, showing that the Conservatives are slightly ahead of the Liberals in that province. Where do things sit from where you are? I haven't seen the breakout writing by writing, but uh, the Conservatives in Quebec is one of those cases where the national, or should I say provincial in this context, uh, uh, numbers don't really matter. It depends on writing per writing. Uh, if the Liberal vote is more consecrated, uh, concentrated, for example, in uh, the Montreal region, and if the Bloc Québécois vote is concentrated in the suburbs, um, there's even if the Conservative votes are high, uh, be because it's a three-way uh, race, they're not likely to do a lot of wins, except maybe in the Quebec City broader region. And so, yeah, you really need to look into the details of, of um, how that vote is dis distributed uh, because that's one of those cases where a high percentage overall does not necessarily lead to a lot of gains. Yeah. Okay, let's leave it there, although that was fun. I could go all night. <laughs> Thank you to the Friday Power Panel, Susan Delgor, Marie Vestel, Paul Wells, and Emily Nicolas. There were cracks in the NDP Liberal Alliance this week. Jagmeet Singh is increasingly critical of the Prime Minister and the government he leads, taking a different approach to carbon pricing, backing the failed Conservative motion to exempt all home heating fuel, and claiming responsibility for anti-replacement worker legislation that the Liberal government promised in the last election. Meanwhile, Pierre Polyev kept the carbon tax in the national spotlight while dodging questions about what exactly he'll do to fight climate change. This week made for strange bedfellows with competing claims about who is working with whom, leaving coalition as the dirty word once again. We have a costly carbon tax coalition that includes the separatists. The corporate coalition of liberals and conservatives may strike again. This NDP liberal government and this prime minister are just not worth the cost. We're going to check the pulse of federal politics this week. I'm joined by Greg McEachran, former Liberal Ministerial Staffer, and now with KAN Strategies, Melanie Richet, former Director of Communications for the New Democratic Party, and now a Senior Consultant with Ernst Chris Strategies, Fred Delory, former Conservative Campaign Manager and Partner at North Star Public Affairs. Welcome back to you all. Thanks for joining us on this Friday evening. So let's start by dissecting all this talk about a coalition. Greg, what do you make of it? Why are they so fixated on <laughs> accusing everybody of being in a coalition with one another? I, I hope the more they use it, the more it, it becomes less, you know, toxic or valuable or whatever you want to define it as. I think the audience for it might be, you know, the partisans in your own party. Um, the reality is... There's been 13 elections in Canada's history that resulted in minorities. Five of them have been since 2006. So we tend to look at minorities as if they're a bad thing. But Canadians are telling us more and more, 
that this is what they want. Uh, Paul Merton had one. Stephen Harper had one. Mm-hmm. Justin Trudeau's, <laughs> or yeah, kind of, right. they've had, you know, there's been a few since 2006, um, since 2004. Uh, and I think, you know, this reflects Canada's politics and um, a true coalition. We can go through the definition, but nobody, you know, nothing that we see right now because you side with another party for a vote. That's not what a coalition is. There's no NDP members serving in cabinet or there's, and last time I checked, there's no conservatives serving in, in Justin's cabinet. So yeah, it's it's kind of silly and I think it's very uh, inside baseball. And there actually hasn't been a coalition government in this country in decades, right? Like generations. We, we've had, as you say, minority governments, but there hasn't actually been a formal coalition. It's not all that common, really, in the Westminster system of parliamentary democracy. Anyways, that's besides the point. <laughs> Melanie, what do you think of all this talk about coalition? Yeah, I think it's the exact point that you just made the I think this is more for people's own partisans than it is for regular folks watching at home. Um, Now, I I do think that... when you are talking to those partisans, I think they're looking to see different things, right? So so for NDP voters, um, it's really important to distance yourself a little bit from the Liberals, but also work with the Liberals. It's kind of, you got to do both things. So when you're able to uh, show that the reason that you need New Democrats is because you need to push Liberals to do more, uh, and the ability to put Liberals and Conservatives together, I think helps doing that when you're, when you're showing those voters that, no, no, don't vote for the Liberals because you're scared of the Conservatives next election. You actually need us to make sure that the Liberals do stuff. So I think that's where some of that language, to your point, comes in. But it's less for, um, you know, my parents who are watching at home. It's, it's for folks who are, who are really interested in that language. So you mean for when you say it's for partisans, it's to what? Just rile them up or just get them, like, what do you mean it's... Yeah, I think it's I think it's a reminder. Um, when I talk about NDP voters, it's a reminder that you need to vote for New Democrats, otherwise you're just going to get Liberals, and the Liberals often slide with the Conservatives mm-hmm. on certain stuff, right? So instead of just saying, you know, you're signing together, the language of coalition of saying, well, look, we're going to take this word that's being used against us, and we're going to use it against the other team. Okay, Fred. I have to say, I feel a little bit like I'm in bizarro land right now <laughs> because, uh, yes, we have not had coalition governments in this country since the war. Um, but right now, supply and confidence uh, in all intents and purposes is a coalition. The NDP are keeping the liberals in government. Uh, for the most part, they are obviously they're getting something out of it. True, not cabinet seats. They're not at the decision-making table, but they've asked for certain policies to be implemented. And as a result, they're keeping the liberals afloat. But we have seen this week where there are other parties that could keep the Liberals afloat, where the, the you know they, they obviously worked with the Bloc Québécois on a motion, and, and they actually voted with the Conservatives on a motion, or the Conservatives voted with them. Uh, so, But at the end of the day, uh, the reason why this minority parliament is lasting so long is because the NDP is allowing it to. Yeah, and I mean, they're setting the agenda to some degree too, right? I mean, some of these things the Liberals, yes, campaigned for, like the anti-replacement worker legislation, it may have come up, but... It might not have come up this soon. It might not have been, you know, all the weight behind it that the government has thrown this week. Um, you know, it just, you know, could have just fallen by the wayside. Could have been left on the cutting room floor potentially, right? It might not have been fulfilled, but with the NDP behind them, um, all of a sudden we have this legislation. Okay, Greg, what's your pick for the week on this Friday night? So last week when we were here, we were still talking about the price on carbon. And guess what? We're going to talk about it again. Um, you know, notwithstanding, I, you know, I heard um, James Moore on this show yesterday say this is all about, it's in Atlantic Canada only. I heard a former Liberal cabinet minister say it on uh, CBC Radio. I saw a pundit, a conservative pundit, write about it in the Hill Times, and they're wrong. 
Um, and I noticed that there's a letter that's gone from some premiers. I noticed it moved about an hour ago. Um, and they are very clear in the letter. They're accurate that it's not just for Atlanta, Canada. Funny how that works. And I would question anybody who needs to disguise what this announcement was about and not tell the truth. I think that's probably something you want to keep an eye on. But when um, the conservative leader um, finally did a media availability that wasn't with one reporter in an apple orchard in British Columbia, <laughs> he was pressed on his lack of a plan and what does he want to do to whether or not to meet the Paris Accords. And as I reminded um, my good friend Fred last week, he ran a campaign for the conservatives last time where they did have a climate plan and they don't have one right now. Um, so I think that, you know, as much as the conservatives and maybe to a certain extent the NDP wanted this to be a liberal issue, it's not. And then there's the NDP vote. And Mel gave us a good heads up last week that this was going to be somewhat problematic for the NDP. And I think a quarter of the caucus decided to abstain. That is not a good move. So to your earlier topic about whether or not the NDP liberal deal is, is in jeopardy, at the end of the week, we did you know have the, the labor anti-scab legislation. So perhaps it's still there. Um, I'm known to have a beverage or two. And this week, I might have seen Anne McGrath from the NDP um, with with uh, Katie Telford, the chief of staff, and Minister Freeland's new chief of staff, Andrew Bevan. So I think all is not lost. But uh, my point being that you have to be really careful that when you throw something against your political opponents, that some of it doesn't splash back on you a little bit too. Fred, do you think it splashed back, or do you think it was a great week for Polyev? Uh, no, I think it, it was an interesting week where I really thought last week that this was he set this up very well. We were going to have this motion, we're going to have this debate, um, but it got flipped on him in some regards where uh, he had to vote with the Liberals uh, on a motion that I, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. Uh, I didn't think that was going to happen. Uh, so it kind of puts a bit of water in our wine. Uh, so that is a bit problematic in that regard. Melanie? Yeah, I think that that was the goal of what the NDP did this week, right? They wanted to show that, no, we are, last week when we voted with the Conservatives, we were voting because we wanted to say uh, we're standing up for people who are having a hard time making their bills. Um, whereas when it comes to actually fighting the climate crisis and taking on, you know, the CEOs who have been making a lot of money off of um, more expensive gas, etc., um, we're the party who's actually going to take it to take that fight and take it on and, and look at the Liberals and the Conservatives who aren't... Um, who, who are voting against us on this, right? So the the argument that, that uh, folks like to say, you know, liberal Tory, same old story when it came to uh, taking on um, CEOs and, and corporations who are making money off of this um, affordability crisis, the, the liberals and the conservatives teamed up together. I want to ask you, uh, Jagmeet Singh was in Edmonton today. He gave a press conference, and he, I don't know if he's trying out a new line or what it is, but he did say, ax the tax. And you know that's so familiar. So familiar. That's yeah. not really his line. Not trademark. No, 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 yeah. I mean, it's it's not the most original line, no. Fred. I mean, it's not like he's you know copying some great work of art, but. <laughs> It That's is sure. known, you know, he's known for using this one, right? I mean, and he's kind of trademarked it. That's his slogan. And then to hear Jugmeet Singh say it today, I was caught off guard. Like, mm. what is that all about? Is is he just also seeing the poll numbers and realizes that Polyev is in the poll position right now? Like, what is what would be motivating that? Do you think? Uh, that's a really good question that I'll that I'll have to to ask some folks about. Uh, I missed that today, but but funny enough, um, our group chat at work the other day was talking exactly about that line, "Ax the tax," and and what it means for New Democrats, especially New Democrats in British Columbia. Um, so uh, what. Um, 
I think is trying to be done here is, again, just more of the conversation around um, New Democrats understand how important affordability issues are to people and how some measures are affecting people more than they're affecting others and that um, we need to take a look at uh, what's happening to help people who are having a hard time making uh, ends meet instead of making it harder for them. Okay, now give me your pick for the week. Yes, my pick for the week was the anti-scab legislation, so mm -hmm. the uh, replacement worker legislation. Uh, this is something, I think, in the last eight years, the NDP has put forward something like 15 times. Um, in 2016, the Liberals and the Conservatives teamed up to... to uh, vote no, so it didn't go through. Um, and this was one of the uh, important planks in the supply and confidence agreement um, with the Liberals. So this is something that New Democrats with Labour have been fighting for for a really long time. And basically what this does is it'll make it easier uh, when workers are asking for better wages, are bargaining for better wages and better working conditions, that their employers can't just replace them with other workers in that process. So um, a really good day for, for Jigmeet today and for the NDP caucus and for Labour. Uh, that press conference with or, or that press conference with B. Brusque and with Marty Warren and other mm -hmm. Labour leaders was, was really good to see. And it was nice to see, to your point earlier, that there's still... Um, there's, there's a reason that, that Jagmeet is not in a coalition government, and that's because he's not a liberal, but it doesn't mean that they can't work together. And I think we saw that today. And, and the other kind of nice thing for um, New Democrats and, and perhaps liberals on this issue is that they're going to be able to see how the conservatives vote. And if the conservatives don't vote with them, um, well, that, that worker vote that the conservatives are trying to persuade over to their side, mm -hmm. um, it's an argument for the NDP to just go right back to them and say, this guy's not, not working for you. Greg? Um, can I just say that the announcement of this seemed to go much better than the one around the, uh, the carbon pricing. Um, <laughs> and so, hey, you know, each day he's getting a little bit better. It's year eight, any time now. Um, but the, 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 um, <laughs> the announcement itself went much better. And to Mel's point, I think most Canadians are not super partisan and they expect their politicians mm -hmm. to work together. They really don't understand the, in, you know, the inside baseball cut and thrust. Uh, so I think it was a good announcement. Um, and, and again, and I noticed that Seamus O'Regan was making the point that it was in the Liberals' 21 platform. Yeah, I mean, Fred, though, businesses are not happy with this. I mean, the telcos, the railways, they're saying, you know, if there's a work stoppage, the cell networks could go down. The railways could stop running. It could have huge consequences not having replacement workers on the job. What do you make of that? Well, politically, I think this is a very interesting bill where, obviously, we know the Liberals, where they are, they introduced it. The NDP support it, and we're driving it. Uh, the Bloc, I assume, I don't pay much attention to the Bloc. <laughs> Where are the Conservatives on this? I don't know. Uh, yeah. What are we going to come out on that? What are positions going to be? Because, as others have said here, Mel said, we are trying to get that worker vote. Uh, you know, there's uh, in Ontario, Monty McNaughton, the former Minister of Labour, has done an amazing job turning the Conservative tide in terms of blue-collar workers and union workers. And Aaron O'Toole ran on this hard as well yeah. when he was leader. And Pierre Poliev's trying to do the same. So this puts the Conservatives in a bit of a bind. Yeah. What are they going to do here? Because there, there are there are issues on both sides of this, where the, the business side, as you mentioned. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out because I don't think they have a position yet, and they're trying to figure this out right now. And Doug Ford did well courting private sector unions, right, in the last provincial He won election. the vote. On yeah. that. Uh, give us your pick for the week, please. The, the biggest thing I saw this week that seemed to be formulating uh, in front of us is the, the Liberals seem to have a bit of a hop in their step. They seem to be mm. back. 
um, it, not quite there yet. They're not at full full levels, but you know they announced their campaign chairs, uh, and I'm seeing a message formulating with them. I'm seeing uh, the prime minister speak with a bit more fire in his belly that I've mm. seen in a long time. I felt for the last year, I was like, where do they go? Uh, and I'm talking politics here. They're, obviously, they have the burden of governing. They have to do all the stuff. But where are they on the political side of things? Uh, throwing punches, not just taking them the whole time. And it felt like they're this week. They're finally beginning to to punch back, which is obviously going to set us up for a, a fun uh, year politically. Greg, do you think that there's more pep in their step? I'm happy to give Fred the remainder of my time. <laughs> um, if we had gotten to this topic last week, one of the things I wanted to point, point out last week was noting Sean Frazier, Seamus O'Regan, and Mark Miller, each of them pushing back in different areas. Uh, Sean on housing, Seamus, um, last week it was on uh, heat pumps. This week it was more on the, the labor issue. Mark Miller pushing back very directly against the conservative leader. And what's interesting is that these are three people that there's not leadership buzz of both. They're doing mm. their jobs. And again, it's the, the liberals do not always have to rely on the prime minister mm. to deliver the message. Mm. Um, so I think it's interesting that Fred has noted that like this is two weeks in a row where they seem to be up off the map. Okay, Melanie, what do, you take, what do you take away from all this? Do you think that the liberals are in a better position than they have been? I mean, the polls suggest otherwise, but they don't necessarily reflect what happened this week, of course, but they don't seem to be doing all that great nationwide at least. Yeah, so so one of the things that I think has been true for the Liberals for, for months now is they've had a hard time setting the narrative on anything. They're always responding to stuff, whether that be um, from the different political parties, whether that be just current events of things that are happening, they're always responding and not mm-hmm. getting their narrative out there. And and to to your point, I think this week we saw a bit of a switch of that. Uh, we saw, we, I think we saw them do it last week, but it didn't succeed. It kind of got flipped on them. Whereas this week we saw them put narrative forward, a message forward, um, and we saw the Prime Minister also do it. Um, I think there's an interview happening this weekend where he, you know, he says, I'm asking for a fourth mandate, where I I don't know if I've heard him say that that clearly. So um, is it... Uh, are they in a new direction? Are they going down a new path? I think it's way too soon to tell. But it seemed this week that finally they were able to, to flip the narrative a little bit and be more proactive instead of reactive. Yeah, and he's actually walking in the snow. Yes. <laughs> during that interview <laughs> with wow. Nouveau on this French language television network. He is literally in the snow. It's, I mean, it's not leap year and it's not February, so I think we're good. <laughs> I mean, we all know, right, what happened the last time a Trudeau took a walk in the snow. But he was insisting interestingly enough that he really does want to stick around and I, he was emphatic about it too it wasn't just like yeah yeah i think yeah yeah i think i think i'm gonna stay like it's like no i will be there yeah. i will fight this election think in two years how time. more interesting a debate is going to be with with trudeau and Polliver. yeah uh the popcorn sales alone will go through the roof you're right <laughs> okay guys. fire in his belly right which he didn't he has not had for a while it's back Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Thank you so much to Greg McEachran, Melanie Richet, and Fred Delore. I appreciate you guys joining us on a Friday night. Thank you so much. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm J.P. Tasker. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.